Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Sam Galabies. He holds a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering from the University of Sonora in Mexico. Sam immigrated from Mexico to Canada in 2009. He founded a construction company, which he successfully sold after seven years in business. The sale allowed Sam to pursue other ventures and opportunities while connecting with other entrepreneurs and share ideas. His current venture is Outworks, which provides nearshoring solutions. Let's get right to Sam's conversation with Jose Azares. Take it away, Sam. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rainforest Podcast. This is Sam Galaviz, your host, and we have a very special guest in this episode. Jose Azares. Jose is a serial entrepreneur with a bachelor and master's in engineering and an MBA from McGill University. Currently owns an inclusive driven restaurant chain, Reaper, which is burger backwards. Jose, thank you very much for taking the time to share um, your story with everyone. I think you have a uh, very important message to share, and I'm excited to dig a little deeper. Um, so I would like to start in, from the beginning. Um, if you could tell us a little bit of your childhood, you know, your upbringing, I think it would be a good place to start. And then, you know, we can take it from there. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. Uh, well, I guess I was uh, born in Venezuela in South, uh, South America, but my parents, my dad is from Chile and my mom from Colombia. So they, they actually, they emigrated to Venezuela and that's where I was born. Then after that, I was raised in Venezuela and finished my high school in Venezuela. Then I did my senior high school year in the States because in my family, we have a tradition that uh, every kid has to have uh, their senior high school year in a foreign country. Okay? Oh, nice. My parents, they, they, very, they appreciate a lot of new cultures and new language. So I went to the States. My older brother went to the States, but my younger brother went to Europe, right? So that's a, like a family tradition. So I went to do my senior high school year in Montana. Okay. In Montana. Montana. Yeah, in Montana. Places, Montana. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> so, um, spent there the whole year. And then after I came back to Venezuela and I started my university in Venezuela and I finished my, my uh, engineering, my bachelor in engineering in Venezuela. But then after that, I actually emigrated or I went to study in Montreal. So I went to do my master in engineering, construction engineering in Concordia University at Montreal. Okay. So um, after I finished my master, I decided not to go back to Venezuela. Okay. I when I when I, when I spent the two years in Montreal. Well, Montreal is a it's like a wild city, right? So I decided to stay in Canada because I realized that the opportunities that we had here in Canada were vastly uh, more beneficial than the ones that the ones that I had in Venezuela. So. Um, Stayed here and I got a job with uh, Sancor, but that's pretty much my 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 shy my childhood in a nutshell. Well, that's pretty interesting. And how was it to move from Venezuela? I mean, yeah. it's so different Venezuela from yeah. Canada. I guess that when you were in Montana, you had a, a feeling for for adapting to to this culture because it's kind of similar, not the same, obviously, yeah. but 
and obviously Montreal is totally different. So I guess do you speak French as well? Like no, I speak. I used to speak a little bit of uh, French, uh, basic, but I lost it after I. If you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but that's actually a very good question. I guess uh, we were always adaptable. Our family was always adaptable. Although I was born in Venezuela, I never had any family in Venezuela. So we were a very small family in South America. Normally, Latin families are big, right? We have a uh, big families, aunt, uncles, all that. I never had that. Oh. So it was basically just uh, my two brothers and my parents, and that was it. And we travel a lot. You know, I had the opportunity and the, the chance to travel a lot when we were kids. Yeah. So we were always exposed to new cultures. And my parent, my dad and my mom, they always uh, put us in, in, in scenarios where we had to be on our own in different uh, cultures so we could actually adapt. They knew that uh, being adaptable and having a great education would play a huge role in our future. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And do you ever go to visit Chile and uh, Colombia? Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I lived in Colombia for a couple of years. So I lived in in the coast side of uh, Colombia for a couple of years. So I loved it. So the coast, yeah. Oh, nice. They <laughs> so, say it's real. I would like to travel there to visit. They say it's beautiful. No, like Colombia is beautiful. It's awesome. I went there. I was there when I was uh, in the nineteen in the nineties when it was a little bit insecure. You know, it was mm -hmm. like uh, you know, like with the drug cartels and all that. But still, it was awesome. You know, putting that aside, it was just an awesome. It's an awesome country. You know, filled with a, a lot of a happy people. There's a lot of a festivities. Yeah, so it's a, it was it's awesome. So I spent two years in Colombia when I was uh, ten or twelve, uh, and then I used to travel quite often, like at least at least once every two years to Chile. Yeah. Oh, okay. So even on, on our own. So that's the reason, that's where the adaptability came in. So when I immigrated to Canada or I went to the States for, for my senior high school year, it wasn't a shock for me. I was used to being in that position where I was on my own in a different culture with different language. And it just normally takes uh, two to six months, you know, to actually get it, get used to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think mentioning that adaptability is very important, especially when you're coming from an you have your education in, in Venezuela and then you do your education in Canada. What's the difference between what, what did you find, you know, different? It's huge. I, I won't even say the education. Like I, I actually, I was talking with somebody. It's not only education. It's actually the, the market itself. So for what I, what I remember talking with somebody else is like, if you're an entrepreneur in Venezuela or an entrepreneur here, it's very, very different because if you're raised in a country like Venezuela where the market is not sophisticated, you're being raised looking at a marketing, branding differently. You know, if you're raised here in Canada, you're looking, even if you don't want to become an entrepreneur, yeah. uh, but you're raised here, you're looking at all these things sub subconsciously. You know, you're on, on the streets and you're looking at them, you know, very, very differently. And those kind of things, they actually get tattooed in your mind. So when you're ready to become an entrepreneur or professional, you know, you're not, you don't have to basically uh, catch up. But if you're, if you're coming from countries, like I'll, I'll talk about Venezuela, Colombia and Chile, maybe not, but let's say Colombia, Venezuela, where the markets are very unsophisticated. We don't have big companies. We don't have like the HP or we don't have like the Nike, like the headquarters. That's, you don't, you don't get that, you know, like, uh, and what happens when you get to university, it's not the same. You know, mm -hmm. although you, you may get the same content, it's not the same because you don't absorb it uh, in the same manner because uh, the context is very different. Yeah. So education, of course, education is vastly different, 
But what makes it even even more different is the fact that the context is not as sophisticated as in other countries like Canada, Germany. So that's what makes uh, education even more powerful. Yeah, and I think that sometimes because we know the difference, uh, we don't take it for granted. And I think that's a difference, you know, when us immigrants, uh, I'm from Mexico, um, you know, we, we come to countries like Canada and we see all the opportunities and, you know, it's just so different. And, and, uh, we, we do not take it for granted and we try to take it advantage as, as much as possible. Okay. Right. Um, so, okay. So then you finished your, your, um, master's right in, in, in Montreal. Yeah. Uh, and then you started working for Suncor yeah. and you lived in Fort McMurray. So. I'm not even in Fort Mac. I actually lived uh, four hours north of Fort Mac. Wow. So it wasn't even Fort Mac. So I lived in Fort Mac for three months. And then I basically got a job at Suncor and I started working in a camp. So basically in a construction camp. Wow. Yeah. And that was for like four years. It was right? four, yeah, four years and a bit more. Yeah. And, and how was that experience? I mean, coming from a city that's so diverse, there's yeah. so much stuff to do. Yeah. And then you go to, you know, a camp. Yeah. What happened is that I, I knew that uh, when I went to study engineering, I knew that I wanted, I didn't go to, to study engineering because I wanted to be a civil engineer. I, the reason why I studied engineering is because I wanted to get the mindset of an engineer, which is basically solving problems with the least possible resources. And I knew that if I graduated and I went to work in an office, I wasn't going to get the real um, problems. You know, I was like, normally what happens in engineering is that you have field engineering and then you have office engineering. Mm. When you're in the office, all the real issues, they get filtered because the real issues about engineering, they happen on the field, right? So the reason why I decided to work in the field is because I really wanted to use the engineering mindset that I was uh, trained for. You know, keep in mind that I did my bachelor engineering, so that was five years and then two years more. So it's seven years that you, I invested in my mind, not for the sake of uh, having a diploma. I never care about the diploma. I care about the mindset. So I said, okay, if I invested seven years of my life to get that mindset, I want to basically practice it where it really matters. So that's the reason why I actually went to work in a camp and I loved it. It was awesome. You know, like the, the experience that I got in the camp is hands down, like it's, it's nine day, you know, like in the office is more about, don't get me wrong. In the office, you're still going to do some sort of uh, problem solving. But it's not the same. Like the, the, the dynamics are different, you know, like, uh, people are different, you know, so um, I loved it. You know, it was four years and a half that, um, I started uh, basically as a EIT, which is basically an engineering training. And then I ended up uh, being, um, like an assistant, assistant construction manager in a matter of four years. And it's because in the camp, you have no, there's no politics. There's mm. no bureaucracy. So you can just basically your perform your development in the field is directly correlated to your performance. Oh, okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, it prepped you to what was your next step. How did you decide yeah. to leave that space? And because you were doing pretty well, yeah, um, to start your own company after with uh, Rigware Solutions? Well, what happens is that uh, even after I finished Sanko, I didn't do my data company right away. I went to do my MBA. So what happened, oh, this was basically, a, I won't say a plan, but it was like stepping stones that I was taking throughout the whole, I knew in my 16s or my 17s, even when I left Venezuela, that I wanted to become an entrepreneur in a sophisticated market like uh, United States or Canada. And I knew that my, my first step, and that came from my dad, my first step was to basically get the corporate experience. First of all, get educated. 
in a developed country. Okay. So I can get level up, you know, with everybody. Then the next step was to get the corporate experience. So I needed to get the corporate experience from a well-known company that has the process, that had the processes and the procedures. So I did that. I worked five years. And then the next step for me, I thought that I was ready to become an entrepreneur, but then I just, I realized that I didn't have the business skills. I didn't have the marketing, you know, sales, technology. So that's the reason why I decided to do my go away and to do my MBA. And in order for me to do an MBA, I needed to have the brand, like a good MBA, like a recognized MBA. I needed to have the brand of a good corporation behind it. Mm. So that's the reason why I did Sanker. And then I decided to do my MBA because I knew that in order for me to start like the next company, like the first company that I did, Rigware, I needed to have the, the business skills, the strategy skills, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you had it all planned out since, uh, you know, way years uh, back. I saw that I had it planned out, but I, I had a, I, I, I knew my point. You I had knew, a vision. I had a vision. Okay. I didn't know how I was going to get there. Yeah. I was just basically embracing whatever was coming at that point. I was looking for them. But uh, it, it wasn't like it was really planned out, but it was pretty, the structure was there. I knew corporate, yeah, like, yeah, I knew basically the steps that I needed to do to a point. Okay, yeah. cool. And I, sometimes I, I hear that, you know, MBAs are good and sometimes they say MBAs don't really uh, teach you what is out there. Like, what's your experience in, in, in terms of, because you did it, so, yeah. yeah. For me, it was, uh, I call this inflection points in my life, right? So inflection points are basically points in your life where you just do something, you experience something, and they take you to a different level, intellectually, personally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it. I think MBAs are a case-by-case -case kind of thing, you know? For me, it was fully worth it, mm -hmm. Okay. You got to take advantage of it as much as possible. And again, it goes back to, you get what you put in, right? And what happens in my case, I needed it because like I told you, I came from a country where my mind was not exposed to top-notch strategic uh, tactics, top-notch branding. Because when I was a kid, I never saw that. I would only see mom and pops all around me, right? Mm, because yes, that's yes. Venezuela, right? Venezuela, we don't have a huge corporation. Everybody has a corner store. Exactly. Somebody's selling something exactly. outside their house, right? Exactly. <laughs> so what happens is that uh, when I came to Canada, I realized that right away. I started basically not comparing, but just benchmarking myself with the same with the same uh, kids. You know, like I was 22 at that point. I realized that I didn't have the same exposure that they... That I, well, I, it's unavoidable. Like, it's unavoidable. I mean, yeah. And you yeah, can't take yeah, it personally, yeah. but you just have to realize it. Yeah. So that's the reason why I, I knew... That when I took my, when I did the corporate experience, I knew that I didn't have the business skills that maybe some, another person from here in Canada would have had, not because they, they, they learned it just because they were exposed to it. Mm -hmm. It's easier for them to absorb that knowledge. Yeah. So for me, the, the MBA was more for leveling purposes, was for me to level myself a strategic and business wise with everybody that was out there. Absorb as much as you could. Yeah. Just to kind of like, in your mind, level yeah. to the rest yeah. of the... I, I knew I had the engineering, blah, 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 but it's very different business-wise, you know? Yeah. So I had to basically level myself up. So that's the reason why, in my case, it was... Uh, it was... It was it was uh, worth it. It was worth it. Okay. You hear sometimes that it's not worth it. Again, what I tell about MBAs, if you're going to invest two, t two years of your life in an MBA, yeah. make sure that you get... Uh, you do it in a top 50, you know... Don't waste your time doing it in a, in a online course. <laughs> yeah. Don't do online yeah. MBA. Like yeah. 80, 90% of the MBA is a network. It's a right? network. Yeah. It's a network. It's the in, it's the in class, uh, the peer to peer training. 
and you have to get it from a recognized university, right? So that's what I tell people, okay, okay. if they want to do it. Oh, yeah. that's that's a good advice. Yeah, thank you, thank you for that. And okay, so you did your MBA, then how did you think of doing your first startup? Like, did you partner with somebody yeah. within your um, your new network, or yeah. how did? Yeah, so halfway in, so I started my MBA at McGill. So halfway in, I. I felt ready to take uh, the jump, right? And what happens, I used to work in, in oil and gas and oil and gas is very traditional when it comes down to technology, right? So at that point I had a, a, an idea. I said, okay, I wanna basically take the jump and do like a startup. So I partnered with a friend from my MBA. He's a, his name is Charles, he's a software engineer. Actually he works for Microsoft right now. And we decided I had an idea to make a process in the oil and gas industry very effective because it was being done very traditionally with paper, clipboards. And, and I you said, already had the background. You already worked there for four years. Exactly. So you already knew what was needed. You right? got it. Yeah. I knew the pain points. Yeah. I knew that uh, there was uh, could, it could be done a lot better, right? Yeah. So I told my friend and he thought that it was a great idea and he was a technical founder. So we decided to actually go ahead and during the summer, instead of uh, doing a uh, an internship like everybody else, we decided to actually leave Montreal and come to Calgary and just basically pitch it. And that's interesting. Why Calgary? Because of uh, your background when, yeah. when you work with Suncor, yeah. that's why. Yeah. Okay. And I had my networks here, right? So okay. it was easier for me to get a intros, right? For mm -hmm. me to demo what I wanted to do, right? And we came, we came to Calgary and basically we demo our product to Adco. And Adco loved it, you know, and they said they were actually our first uh, client. And after we got uh, the contract signed, I decided to drop out of the, uh, the MBA and Charles was actually already finished. So I said, we, let's do something. Let's just go back. Let's just go to Calgary. I'll drop out and let's get this going. And basically we just rent a, um, an apartment in Beltline and we were just basically working there 24 seven to actually meet the client's expectations. So that's basically how everything started. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. How long did you um, keep that company for? Like, so we started in the summer. We started in in the summer of uh, I think 2013, and we had issues with IP with uh, Arco at that point. Okay, although we owned the IP, we had issues. It was the only client that we had. So um, uh, if they went away, they, we had no way to actually keep the company going because we were actually bootstrapping the company with the revenue that we were getting from the client. We mm -hmm. didn't raise any money. So in December that year, we um, finally had our last talk with uh, Arco, you know, like our, our last hostile talks with uh, the company. It was a great experience, you know, it's a great company, but we couldn't, we couldn't work it out. So we had to basically close the company in December, 2013. And Charles went to work with a Microsoft in Montreal. And then since I had dropped out of the MBA at that point, I decided to go back and basically finish my finish. MBA okay. because McGill wanted me to finish. He said, okay, Jose, we want you to finish because, uh, uh, of, because of your background. But what I decided, I decided not to go back to McGill. I actually went and I did my last, uh, a part of my MBA at UT in Austin. Oh, so okay. University of Texas in Austin. So what happens, MBA, sometimes they have a partnership. And you can do basically a year or a semester somewhere else. And I found that I had enough from Miguel. Not because they were, they're bad, just because yeah. I had enough. Well, okay? and, and, and because you're able to adapt so quickly. And I mean, you, you needed it. to take advantage of being in another environment and see what you could take from that. You got it. Okay. And then the way, what I realized is that when I would rig where I realized that although I had the business skills, strategic skills, branding skills, I didn't have their startup skills. 
Mm. And McGill is not a startup, a, like an MBA type of a program. They're more consulting, finance, strate- strategic, and marketing. Okay. So that's the reason why I learned from the from that experience, and I decided that I was missing another gap. So, so I went to UT, and UT is actually very well known for being an entrepreneurial MBA. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Austin is uh, one of those startup hubs yeah. that are rising more and more, yeah. right? There's a lot of capital invested in that wow. in that town, right? It's, not, it's, it's just a culture. Like, even if you compare the campus from UT and the campus at McGill, you know, it's so different. Everybody's talking about uh, building their own company and just the vibe is different. Nothing is right or wrong. It's just you have to decide where you fit better, right? So at that point in my life, uh, UT... Was that, yeah, yeah, because you already have that entrepreneurial experience and you wanted to carry that forward you got I it. guess right and I knew that I was going to do it again yeah so I just needed so you to you can't be... go back once <laughs> actually it'll be, it'll, be, it'll be it's funny because you can't go back it's just like a, what happens is just how you go back that's oh, the okay. question you know if I if I if I were here now I did entrepreneurial entrepreneurship for like let's say the last uh, seven years and I would go back to oil and gas I would never do that yeah yeah right but if all, if I'm here and all of a sudden I go back to corporate but I go back to corporate with established let's say Zendesk or a uh, Google Apps not even Google something but Google a little Apps. bit more flexible more flexible, flexible yeah. more uh, where your creativity and flexibility yeah, yeah. brings value okay yeah right Makes so sense. that is a, it's about the how you yeah. actually see that a lot you see a lot of uh, founders that they actually build companies. And the next step is for them to actually run a department or run a team in a... Like an entrepreneur, right? Exactly. That's a, an entrepreneur. Exactly. You got it. Okay. Cool. And uh, so your experience, and how long did you stay there in Texas? Uh, six months. Six so months. I did my last semester there. And that's basically where I got inspired and basically where oh, I got the idea for yeah, my for second, second. Second. Yeah, for the second uh, project. Talk about us about that. How was that? Yeah, so when I was in Austin, um, I knew that I didn't want to do another uh, oil and gas technology company. I felt that um, the industry was going to go sideways, which is basically what's going on right now. Yes. Um, but you went a totally different direct, like uh, 180. Not because like I wanted to, I'll be honest. Okay. It's because I had to. One thing about, inter- uh, I think, in, in entrepreneurship is that you have to embrace what comes to you and you have to basically squeeze the most that you can. Sometimes you don't have the option. So in my case, I finished my MBA at UT and I wanted to stay in the States. I actually wanted to stay in Austin. I actually wanted to create a, launch a 3D printing company. 3D is actually, 3D printing is very well known in UT, in Texas. Okay. Uh, like in Austin, sorry. It's actually, that's where, where one of the technologies actually got uh, created. But I had to come back for personal reasons, right? Okay. So um, it wasn't that I wanted to. It's just like I was not forced, but I just, the stage in my life uh, uh, gave me a different opportunity. So I had to come back to Calgary for personal reasons. And when I was here, I had two options. I could either, I could either go back to corporate I had a different, a couple of offers. offers, yeah, and do an entrepreneurial, but I wanted to do technology, but I, at that point, Kyrie was not a technology, now it's up and coming, but at that point, it was like very bad when it come down to technology, the, the, the landscape, right? So um, I decided to do something that I could do with, without anybody, meaning without a technical founder. So that's where I thought about the food and hospitality for two reasons. One, because in Austin, there was a concept very similar to what I created that where I used to go every week. So I loved it. It was something that I, I was very passionate about. And it was like a local 
craft, uh, like a local boutique uh, burger shop. And then when I came to Calgary, I realized that Calgary was in the food and hospitality was separated in the burger segment was either a restaurant with a burger section, boring, or a burger joint, which is basically maybe sexy or, but it was like dirty, not dirty, but more like a small, you know, nothing like a brand. So I found that there was a, a, a space. segment, yeah, okay. space in the middle that I could go in and basically use it as a, as a launch pad. Okay. That's basically how I created the the second company, Regrub, which is basically burger backwards. But the whole idea when I created that company is that I didn't want to be in the food and hospitality. I wanted to create a restaurant brand that was based on three foundations, which is innovation, creativity, and purpose. So I don't like I I I love food, but I, the company could not be based on food. We didn't mm. want to be the best burger in town. No, we wanted to be the most creative, the most innovative, and the most purposeful uh, brand in this segment. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. And I mean, yeah, it, it, it stands out for sure. Um, you know, with all the uh, messaging of uh, empowerment and, and also you've also incorporated, in, um, you know, uh, being in- inclusive, yeah. right? Like you, you, do you want to talk about that? Like yeah. how, how you came into, into that part? Again, it's the same thing. It didn't happen because I meant it. It happened because, uh, it just came to me and I embraced it, you know? So when I started regroup one year in, I remember that I was going through like a process of hiring people. And then during that time, there was a girl that I always mentioned, Lisa, because I was actually thinking about her yesterday. Uh, Lisa, she, mm, great girl. She has uh, some, not social disability, but social uh, awkwardness, which uh, awkwardness is in a good way. But at that point, I was so ignorant about, uh, I had that uh, traditional mentality, you know, like if somebody's awkward, it means that they can't do the job. That was basically how my mind used to work. You know what? It's not just you. I no. think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of perception in, yeah. in that, right? And I think there's a lot more, people need to be educated in that. And I like, that's what I like about your messaging in, in, in that regard. So, um, yeah, continue. Yeah, so... What happened is that she applied for the job seven times and I kept rejecting her because... Seven times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kept rejecting her, even face-to-face because of the awkwardness. You know, yeah. I thought that she couldn't, she, would, she wasn't going to be able to do the job because of a, my mentality or my prototype of a, a waitress or a line cook fed one box and she didn't feed it at that point because of X, Y, Z, right? Until she came for the last, not for the last time, because I knew she would, she would keep coming, but she came to me and she said, Jose, I need a, I want a job and I want to work here. I really want to work here. Why don't you give me a job? And then we started talking and then she said something that actually resonated with me. She said that she couldn't find a job for three years. Wow. Yeah, like a full-time job. And I was like, okay, there's something wrong here. And remember, I came from Venezuela. My family came from another country into Venezuela. So that resonated with me. I said, you know what? Why don't you come and work with us? You know, like, uh, and she killed it. You know, it was a, it was a little bit of a different. Eye opener? Did you- it was an eye opener. But at the beginning, I'm not going to lie. It was a, at the beginning, it required a little more training. But then after she got to that sweet point, she was a lot more committed, a lot more engaged, a lot more reliable than anybody else. Well, she tried seven times. I mean, that kind of shows her character yeah. as well, right? And what happens, she saw the opportunity and she got the opportunity and she's not gonna, she wasn't going to let it go. So she performed, performed, performed. And that's basically when the whole inclusiveness uh, thing started trickling into my mind. So then I started seeing it more. Then what happens, that just got me curious. 
I started reading about it. I started basically researching about it. And then I started working with agencies here in the city, you know, like human services agencies that I work with intellectually or physically challenged or veterans, immigrants or refugees. And I started seeing that there was something there that's not working, mm-hmm. you know. The, what I did after that, I started researching, reading, and I decided to change the HR practices of that regroup. So at that point, we had any other HR practice, you know, we used recruit, onboard, and train anybody, you know, the one that would fit the most yeah. to do the job functionally. Of course. of course. But at that point, I decided to basically change HR practice. And we said, okay, we're going to change our HR practice and we're going to be based on passion, commitment, and reliability. At that point, I did not care whether they had experience or they came from the industry or they knew, they knew how to do the job. Yeah. I just needed passion, commitment, and reliability. Because, yeah, you're right. Like, um, there's this book, uh, The E-Myth, that says that if you have a system that somebody can, you can put anybody, you know, in, in, in that system. And if the system doesn't work, that person is not going to be able to do their job properly. Exactly. So basically, you create a system where you can put anybody that is committed, that has that passion of working and, and, and doing the, the things properly. And they were able to deliver because you were able to put, you know, uh, put them in that direction, yeah. right? Because I find it's like what happened with me. If you have the passion, the commitment, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, if you're passionate about having a job, you're going to, you're going to appreciate it, meaning that you're going to be committed to it. Right. And you're going to learn about it, meaning that you're going to be reliable. So that, that's basically what it is. And I, in the food and hospitality, you don't have to train a lot. It's not like other jobs where you have to like coding, where you have to learn for like six, seven, eight months. You know, food and hospitality, you can basically get trained in a matter of two or three days. Okay. So that's what happened. I changed all the sharp practices and we became inclusive. And now the company basically are out of our workforce. 25 to 35% of our workforce come from vulnerable communities, you know, like, like I mentioned before, intellectual or physically challenged and not just for entry level jobs, for managers, anything. Okay. So if they're able to perform or deliver, I mean, regardless of, of. But I'll be honest with you, like at the beginning, it took a hit on us, you know, because it does require extra accommodation. It does require extra training, but we were able to figure out a model where we have the extra training or the extra accommodation in place and it doesn't affect our financials anymore. So we have the same metrics as any restaurant would have. We have the same labor cost, the same food cost. And what would you tell somebody that doesn't have that view? Because obviously, I mean, you went through it and everything like, how would you have somebody start through that path? I guess I, 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 I've been asked this question many times and it's hard to basically pinpoint it. But what I tell people is that if you're open, you don't have to go from not inclusive to inclusive in one shot because that does not work. I can tell, I can tell you that. That's good. So basically you have to go from not being inclusive to being open. That's one. And then from being open to try. Right. Maybe try one person that you, you feel connected with, you know, one community that you feel connected to. Okay. Because keep in mind that nowadays one in eight people in the world actually have some sort of disability. So that's 50%. So in your circle, somebody's going to be affected by it somehow, whether a disability or a challenge or a immigration or refugee. So that's one thing that is going to, that's going to make, make your mind being open. And it's going to allow you to try, but try with somebody, something that you resonate with. And then if you try with something that you resonate with, you're going to be willing to basically put that extra effort. Yeah. And then you're going to basically start seeing the benefits. And that's basically the, how the snowball, you know, because at the beginning is a big snowball yeah. and you cannot just roll it. You have to roll it. Um, Slowly. Yeah. Or getting just, into it a little bit, um, little yeah. by little, right? So it starts with it being open. 
and just trying to resonate with something that may, that touches you. Yeah, that's yeah. great advice. Yeah. I'll say thank you. Um, and I think that brings you to like, how did you move from Regrub to what you're working on now, Nidu? <laughs> The same thing is funny. It's like, I, I, and I, I've been talking with my girlfriend about this. It's all about, uh, and I, I know it sounds stupid and cheesy, but it's about serendipity. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a combination of events that brings you to something. So what happened when I, when I started regroup, I didn't know that a inclusiveness is inclusion was going to be or inclusiveness was going to be such a huge part of my life. Then my kid was born. So, although I already told you the story about Lisa, which is HR practices, but then my kid was born and my kid was born with a, he was diagnosed with Down syndrome. So at that point, I started basically realizing, imagine if Lisa had issues finding a job, what would happen with my kid when he's 15 and 20? And not only my kid, everybody, you know, because we, I rem- like we have uh, in our company, Alex, Jason, Jenny. So I said, what if rigor was not there? Why? What if they would? It would be harder for them to find a job, yeah, right? Of so that's when I started realizing that I had to do something about it. You know, not because I had to do something; just I, I felt it. Okay, because of all the stuff that happened, it actually took me there. So in January, I decided to move on from Regrub. I said, okay, although Regrub is great, you know, it was so that was like four years. Right? It was four years. Okay, yeah. so four, four years of building it. Um, you opened a second yeah store, second store, um, and then we had another store in Edmonton. Okay, that I closed in January to fully commit to this uh, okay, okay. Uh, project because the commuting in was not going to allow me to do it. Okay. So we had three locations uh, as of January, and it was growing, and it's, it's still growing because I still own it, but. What happened is that my effort and energy was not well invested there. Okay. Okay. So what happened, I knew that I had my management team. They could do it. They can, they're passionate about it. You know, they're passionate about bringing rig up to the next level. So they're doing it right now. So what I did, I appointed a management team that came from the, from the trenches, you know, like it's not that I, I went and hired like an executive. No, no, no. It's actually coming from the team that I created that I basically, a shape in those and, four and years. That makes your team stronger. Yeah, it does. They're committed. Yeah. Uh, they've been there from the beginning. Yeah. And it, it allows you to step aside a little bit. Yeah. Obviously, you're still collaborating with yeah. them strategically. Yeah. But now you're moving on to your next phase, yeah. which also is kind of... It's combined it's to combined, it. right? It's combined because what happens at that point, I decided that I wanted to attack the global issue of inclusion in the workplace. So that's what I'm trying to do. Just attack inclusion in the workplace. I see a world like 15, 20 years on the road where companies are inclusive, not because they have to or not as an option. It's because it's a business standard. It's something that the market expects. So see the same, the same, as similar to what happened with the coffee beans back in the nineties or the eighties. Coffee beans back in the eighties or the nineties, you know, it wasn't ethically sourced. You know, producers were not being fair, uh, equally or fairly. And what happened, Fairtrade came in, the Fairtrade organization, and they basically made the whole supply chain uh, fair. That's the reason. Okay. But it took them 15 to 20 years. But now when you go to a coffee shop, you know, if you know that that coffee shop is not treating the producers in Africa or in Central America or South America fairly, you will not support that business. Of course. So that's basically what happened. That's the same thing that I wanted to, I want to basically contribute when it comes down to inclusion. That 10, 15, 20 years on the road, uh, inclusion is not uh, an option or it's not something nice. It's just part of it. It's just, like, part it's of just it. you know, it's it not, there's nothing special about that. You yeah. want it to make it an, a new normal. Exactly. Right? To have, uh, exactly. Okay. So that's basically how everything started, you know, like, uh, and then 
Uh, I knew that with Regroup, we had hit a, something like a sweet point when it came down to inclusion in the workplace. So what I decided, I decided to take the HR practices that I created at Regroup and basically take them out and combine them with technology. Okay. And that's when, yeah. So in January, I decided to move on and go, I also decided to do an incubator, uh, an impact incubator with uh, in the Nordic and in the Valley. Run. Tell us about that singularity. Yeah. Here, right. Um, tell us about that. How did you, how did you get into that? Like how, how, what's the process of getting into that? Because I mean, it was a very special group, right? Yeah. About, about hundreds of applications, yeah. you know, um, and then you have to go to Denmark to be there for a bit and then you come back and, and then go to uh, San Francisco. Yeah. And I mean, it's a pretty complete program. Like, t- yeah, it was t- awesome. Yeah. Honestly, it was awesome. But I'll be honest, like even before I applied, I had no idea about Singularity. How I got to know about the program is because I have a friend that I, from Austin, he lives in Barcelona now. He sent me a link and he said, Jose, I think you should apply to this. I think it's something because he knew that I was looking into inclusion and he sent me a link. Did you just have the concept at that point no. in time or did you not? Nothing. nothing. Oh, okay. All I, need, all I had in my mind is that I knew that I, I wanted to hit that issue. Okay. I wanted to basically attack that issue a head on. That's all I had in my mind. Okay. I'm basically paranoid about uh, solving that issue somehow. So that, some, I got the link from my friend. And when I opened the link, it said GSP by Singularity University. I had no idea what it was. All I got to know, it was all the emerging technologies. And he said, you should apply. But the one thing that I realized when I opened the link is that the application was due in four hours. What? So he sent me the link the last day of application. He didn't know. And it was due in four hours. So luckily I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. You know, I'm just going to go ahead and good thing that I had all the content ready. I had videos, everything. So it didn't take me that long. It took me like two hours to do the application. So it was just to a point it was kind of meant to be. Wow. So four I applied, hours before four you hours. send it, you had two hours yeah. that you and did I'm not two kidding. hours. Wow. I'm not kidding because, uh, because uh, I looked into the time difference, you know, because uh, the application deadline, it was a uh, midnight. I, I can't remember where, but I only had four hours to actually. And yeah, so I went ahead, apply. And in my mind, when I apply, I like, oh, this is a long shot. You know, there's no way I'm going to get in, you know, like the last day, you know, maybe I did the application so fast that it, so I think a week and a half after I got a basically like a pre like a um, did they interview you? They, no, what what happens? So basically, you apply. They you put a lot of videos, a lot. Then they accept not they accept entrepreneurs, not a uh, people with ideas. They just want to make sure that you're already gone through the process of a failure or in being down because that's the big, biggest chasm, you know, mm. for getting an idea to something tangible yeah so um, they basically do some checks you know they they make sure that you're an entrepreneur with an existing company okay so um, yeah so we're gonna have after i got a, an email from them saying that i've been accepted that i had basically two weeks to decide if i wanted to go and uh, for me it was a huge decision because uh, although it was a great program at that point i was still going through the transition of a setting regroup up with my management team yeah and we were going into the summer, which is the highest uh, period for the company. So um, that was a challenge, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was it, more than a challenge. It was just hard for me to make the decision. Hmm. Also, uh, or to let go. Was it like, not to let go? Just yeah, I was scared that uh, if I went away, operations was going to go sideways, and I was going to be gone for three months. And the pro- the program is not like you. It's a two hour program daily. No, it's from seven o'clock until basically nine ten p.m. every night. So wow. you're very intense. So that was the biggest um, a question mark, whether if I would go 
I would sacrifice all the work that I done for the four or five years and it would go sideways. But I decided to take the risk. Well, you still communicated with your team from over there, I, yeah. I, I guess, yeah. right? Like, yeah, I, mean, I did. But it was minimal. Honestly, okay. I trusted them. I said, okay, if I'm going to go there, I have to trust them fully. So I trusted them and went, went, went away and I barely talked to them. You know, like I talked to them maybe once a week, something like that. Wow. So it wasn't, yeah, so they were prepared. And what happens sometimes in order for you to, to test if somebody's prepared is to let them on their own. You know, like just let them go, let them be. And I guess it also helped you to realize that you did have a strong team. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you were afraid, but then once you did it, you said, okay, um, you know, I have a good team. So, so, you know. Yeah. So now it is perfect. So it was perfect for me. I was able to actually go there. I learned a lot. It was actually a great, it was a great experience. Uh, and that's where Needham, my new project got founded, you know. So again, the need, like in my mind at that point, I just wanted to fix inclusion in the workplace. So what Singularity did, they just gave me all this content about emerging technologies, about uh, VR, AR, blockchain, quantum computing, you know, like all these crazy emerging technologies and how they're being, they were being used at the time. So what I did, I just found a perfect fit for for Needham to basically emerge merge emerging technologies with uh, inclusive HR practices. And basically what Needham is, is an impact HR tech company that creates um, employment solutions for high turnover businesses like supermarkets, restaurants, coffee shops, so they can attack their existing staffing points, and but we leverage the output for social good. So... Um, that's, so you, you grab that content and then you distribute it, right, um, to other agencies that or minority communities where they can be trained even before going. The, right? the, key, the key thing about this is this is where most of most people, they get a little bit. Uh, and this is actually one of the biggest issues that I'm having right now is that they think that Needham is a social enterprise. That Needham just only creates training for people with disabilities. And that's not the case. What we created with Needham is actually a very... Uh, we came up with a very creative business model. Why? Because what we did with Needham is that we're creating HR tech solutions for, for businesses. Forget mm -hmm. about disabilities. Forget about vulnerable communities. We create HR tech solutions that helps businesses like restaurants, coffee, uh, supermarkets and coffee shops uh, to attack their ceasing staffing points and turnover. You know, the way that uh, this industries are uh, doing staffing and i know because i came from that industry and you have your own restaurant as a lab yeah you're experimenting exactly. there right so the, the the way the way that we do it in this industry is that we actually when we hire somebody we tell that person to come next a week and we wait for that person to come so we can start training them but when they start we have no idea about their engagement their commitment whether they want to do the job or not they and they come basically zero train so this actually makes uh, the whole business very inefficient. Mm -hmm. So uh, like uh, most of these businesses, they lose between a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars yearly in opportunity costs due to these uh, staffing practices. So what we did with Needham was to actually, I said that in order for me to convert a company that is not inclusive to inclusive, was to actually bring them a pure business value proposition. Let's help them with something that is not working for them. So what we're doing, we're creating the, our first solution is to create VR training modules for these companies so they can have a better idea on the new hires engagement and commitment before they start because now these new hires can actually train virtually in their house. So all the analytics can actually 
the, they can be shared with the, the employer and they'll have a better idea when the person comes for the first day. If that person is looking at this as a, as a transitional job, they really want to do it. Yeah. But besides that, what happens is that the new hire when it comes for the first day, that person is trained to a 40 and 60% level. Why? Because they're being trained. They're getting trained virtually, immersively with their uh, training module in their house or whatever. So that's, that's a, so what, they'll have an idea when they yeah. get to the restaurant, they'll know where the stuff is, exactly. like, you know, how the, the, you, you know, whoever's employing them, how they work. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because the training modules are basically done is that we basically go with a 360 degree camera and we do an immersive content creation and then we connect their HR practices or operational practices with the VR training module. So the training module is basically for a that specific business. So it helps the new hire when they come for the first day of work. Basically, they know what they're getting themselves into. They get trained to a 40 and 60% level and they know if it's a fit. Yeah. And it also gives the employer an idea because they have all the analytics behind the module that if that person is committed or not, because if you hire somebody and that person doesn't even open the module, then you know that that person is not a fit. So it's more like a fit HR tech practice that we're giving companies. So this is where the pure business value proposition is. You know, I don't know if you noticed, but I haven't even told you about disabilities. No. Yeah. No. Because people, they normally, when I talk about this, they say, oh, Needham is creating HR tech companies for people with disabilities. No, 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 no. We're creating uh, HR tech uh, solutions for companies. And what we're doing, we're actually taking that content that we created for the business so they can attack their system pain points and we're just leveraging on it. So what we're doing in this case, we're just taking that VR training module that we created for for a specific business and we're uploading that into a platform that is then shared with human services agencies. So it's just a byproduct of what we created. And then these human services agencies are actually using this training module so they can train individuals with the intellectual, physical challenge, immigrant refugees, so they can train as much as they can, you know? So basically practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And then when they go for an interview, they're well prepared. They're well prepared. And the skepticism from the employer can be basically minimized because there is skepticism, you know, because of the way you look, the way you behave. But if you show them with knowledge, hey, you know what, I'm here, but I know how you work. I know where the kitchen is. I know where things are and I know how you do it. Then the skepticism is going to be mitigated. So okay. that's the whole idea. That's how we're going to start converting companies into being inclusive. But what we're doing is that we're telling businesses, all we need is for you to basically come into the platform and share this with human services agencies. By doing this, you're basically being passive inclusive. You don't have to hire them. You yeah. don't. It's up to you. But I believe that with practice, 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 they, these individuals are going to basically going to start basically convincing these employers to be inclusive because the engagement is going to be there, the commitment is going to be there, and now the knowledge is going to be there. Mm. So it's just a long process. Okay. Yeah, so you're making it easier for employers to take that plunge. Yeah. Right. Remember uh, about uh, that I told you about uh, basically being open. Yeah. And then try. What Needham is doing, we're just making it easier for them to try. Yes. And we're put, we're basically empowering these vulnerable communities with the highly relevant in training information so they can make it easier on the employer to try. So Be- it's, you're helping both sides. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And hopefully they meet in the middle exactly. and, uh, they yeah. will. It's just that they have to, it's just a long process. Like I told you fair trade, it doesn't happen from one year to the next one. It takes a, it's a, it's a whole cultural change. So it's a, it's a, it's a long process. You know, I, I think what you're doing is very important. I think that uh, inclusion is very important to to our, our overall community and how to, well, uh, empower 
you know, people that don't have that, those opportunities, I think you're making it way easier for, for both sides. You know, ones are getting trained properly and the others are having the opportunity to be open and contribute passively. But at the same time, you're making them take those little steps, exactly. right? Exactly. And, um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Jose, I really appreciate your time. I, your story is incredible. Uh, thank you very much. Good luck on everything. And uh, do you, do you want to say anything else? Um, any last message? Any all, last final all words? All I can tell, and this is something that I want to, I want to tell to all entrepreneurs out there is that there's a different way to build companies. Okay. Before or back in the days, we wanted to build a company to basically solve an issue and make money out of it, which is fine. You know, like if that's the, the way business should do. But I think there's a new movement. You know, there's a new movement since I, I've been traveling and I've been talking to people in the Nordics, Western Europe, and the States. Make sure that if you're building a company, try to solve an issue. Try to do it because you want to make money. But there's always a way for you to tweak that model to bring some social good, either social good or climate good. You know, nowadays, you know, we're seeing the repercussions of the, the just business and money mentality before. So now what we have to do, we have to look at companies on how to solve an issue, how to make money, but at the same time, how we can bring something good to society. Okay. And that's the new wave. That's the reason why it's called impact startups. Awesome. Thank you very much for your message, Jose. Uh, it was great having you and, uh, Talk to you next time. Thanks. Thank you. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was sponsored by Workhouse bright and inspiring co-working spaces that fuel productivity and cultivate creativity. The way you were meant to work. Make Workhouse Core the new home for your business. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>